afternoon and good evening, wherever and whenever you may be, and welcome to episode 97 of the Fade to Black podcast. I'm Amon Warman. I'm Hannah Flint. And I'm Clarice Lockgrey. This week, I sit down with Justice Smith to discuss the many twists and turns of Apple TV Plus's Sharper, while we review the glistening torsos of Magic Mike's Last Dance, the tough conversations of women talking, and the closeted sexualities of Blue Jean. Plus, in our hot take, we discuss whether it's hypocritical for outspoken actors to work with problematic directors. But first, I have a question for both of you. We're recording this just a few hours before the trailer for what will probably be the second greatest film of 2023 debuts. I speak, of course, of the trailer for Fast 10. How excited are we? Wait, what's the, <laughs> what's the number one that we've already agreed is the best one? Oh, Spider-Man across the spider Everyone else is playing for second. That let's, just, let's, 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 just, let's just be honest with that. I don't remember agreeing to this, but okay. <laughs> But are we excited for Fast 10? Are we excited for this trailer? They had a, they had a whole big trailer premiere event in the States last night. Uh, it was like, it's like a long four-minute trailer, this thing, which is going to debut uh, at 4 p.m. We're recording this on Friday, early afternoon. So it's just before, just after we're going to finish recording is when the trailer drops. How excited are we oh, to watch this thing? for the, the superb owl. <laughs> I, I, I'm increasingly getting the impression on this podcast that Amon is far more into trailers than <laughs> I, I think you've said this before, Clarice. You don't really like watching trailers. And actually, I'm no. kind of the same nowadays. I oh. find that trailers give too much away. Um, and I want to go in there... If it's for work, sure, but like I, I, I try to resist the urge to watch trailers so I can go into something as fresh as possible. Yeah, I get that. So to answer your question, <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. No, see, I get that to a degree. I think when there are trailers that come out that are like that, which do spoil everything in a very inelegant manner, then that is something that can put you off the notion of watching trailers but when the trailers do it right like i said it when it debuted and i say it again now the first trailer for black panther wakanda forever was not only the best trailer of 2022 by a lot but that trailer was art when you do a trailer right like that it's it's art um i'm not I'm, yeah, i don't know always, what but as you was. said amon it's 50 50 so yeah. you're asking me to take a risk and i don't want to take that risk <laughs> I'm risk-averse when it comes to trailers. I don't know. Fine. Yeah. Fine. I will enjoy Maybe it Maybe you should do a podcast dedicated to trailers. <laughs> I feel like that is really, like, you have, it's, you could talk, you could talk an entire episode of The Fate of Black on trailers, I feel. Should we, should, should we make that this episode? Should we, should we do that right now? No, I'm joking. I'm joking. I've got too many other no. commitments, Hannah. That's your spin-off. You wasting another podcast <laughs> on me, all right? Um, okay. But anyway, anyway, Hannah, you've been in LA for the last few days. Why don't you tell the good people, our good listeners, what you've been up to? Well, for any listeners in the North American region, you can now get my book, uh, Strong Female Character. Uh, I flew out there on the 1st and kind of stayed there for a week. Um, I mean, <laughs> I feel like I shouldn't like downplay this because... To be honest, I paid myself to go out there and I thought, oh, I'll go and get to be there when they 
put it in some stocks and some books, some bookshops. And luckily it went in Book Soup, which is like a really big, uh, really famous bookstore in West Hollywood. And like the day after, like Guillermo del Toro hosted like a, a conversation with Tim Blake Nelson for his book. Wait, why am I promoting his book? Like, don't buy that. Because <laughs> it's Tim Blake Nelson, you got to promote him. Yeah, yeah. They, weirdly, they did an event with them two, but they didn't do it with me, which is bizarre. What? Um, <laughs> but no, it was really fun. It was nice to go out there. I love, uh, we got like, we had like fun visiting like so many, so many film locations. I went with my friend Parisa and she was, we had a great time, met up with some friends. Um, but yeah, it was nice to be in the country when it came out. And, you know, fingers crossed people will take a liking to it out there. But I'm a little bit jet lagged. Also, mm. you guys you guys might be able to see. Can you see this little mark? This is what the here. That's like mm. a burn from borrowing my mate Parisa's uh curling tongs. Ooh. Never again. Yeah. This is why I don't use them. <laughs> it was well, like so yeah, anyway, so I came back injured. But I also right. came back with a party sized bag of M M&M and M peanut butter flavoured because they're sick and I'm so sorry I'm not sharing them. <laughs> <laughs> but what did you bring me back, Hannah? That's that's the important question. What did you bring me? My scintillating conversation. <laughs> Sorry, that's not good enough. It's not good enough. It's all good. Mate, I spent <laughs> like so much money on this trip. I can't afford to like, I'm on like boiled eggs this week. <laughs> <laughs> Clarice, what have you been up to? You've been checking out some interesting exhibitions, right? I had a museum day and it was the best day and mm-hmm. I had so much fun. Uh I mean, film, one of them was not film related at all, but the film related one, uh, it's closing 19th of February next week. So it's not that long left, but at Somerset House in London, uh, there's an exhibition called The Horror Show, which is uh, a collection of artworks kind of themed vaguely around monsters, ghosts and witches, but more on a thematic level. Like it's really about the cultural history of the UK like during the 20th and sort of 21st century um as like a time of upheaval and tension and fear and but also there are a bunch of props from like every single British horror movie especially that's come out recently <laughs> so there's stuff from there's the shoes the shoes from St. Maud you know with the mm. thumbtacks in them uh they've got oh, the God. a book from Prevenge with I think like all of Alice Lowe's sketches in them um they've got something from She Will uh oh my god what else do they have oh they had the possum the fucking horrible spider face from (laughs) that do you remember possum where it's the guy and he's got the horrible monster that's like it's so hideous it's so (laughs) effective and it's in that exhibition if you want to go see it uh and stuff from the mighty boosh as well I don't really know the connection, what the connection was, but it was fun to see I that. I suppose there's horror elements of the Mighty Boosh. Yes. With like all Greg, sure. super racist. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Creature from the deep. Yeah. Yeah. Did they have anything from Hereditary there? No, because it was God. British stuff. So <laughs> there, was no, yeah. um, there was no American horror movies. Gotcha. Um, and then I went yeah, to Yeah, get your own museum, American horror. <laughs> I'm sure they do. <laughs> Probably they do. <laughs> uh, yeah, and then I went to an exhibition about the history of translating hieroglyphs, which was really interesting for me and probably not anybody else. <laughs> but it was really cool. I loved it. <laughs> I love that. I love that. Um, what have I been up to? I think it happened on the day the last 
episode went out. Uh, but on that day, I went to the London Critics Circle Film Awards, um, which was cool. I got all suited and booted up. And yeah, it was surprisingly, there, there were some ministers there. I happened to be sat directly in front of Kate Blanchett for the entire ceremony, which was wild. Um, but uh, Michelle Yeoh was there. She got a special award. Uh, I'm so mad. <laughs> I'm so mad because I was like, I was obviously I'm in the critic circle as well, and like they mm-hmm. said to me, "Oh, do you want to do you want to host? Do you want to present one of the awards?" And I was like, mm-hmm. "Where is it?" And it's like, "I'm in LA." And then when I found out Michelle Yeoh's getting, I was like, "Yeah, I can't believe my moment." <laughs> Michelle Yeoh Sorry. is gone. But there you go. Fun night though, right? It was a fun night. It was a fun night. I presented the awards for best director. It went to Todd Field for Tar. Um, so, so yeah, that, that was cool. I've obviously done a, a whole bunch of on stage stuff, but I haven't presented an award before. Um, but yeah, Florence Pugh was there, Michelle Yeoh, Kate Blanchett. Bill Nye won an award and immediately left. <laughs> it's amazing. Um, but yeah, we had a fun time, went to the after party. Um, that was also fun. And yeah, more, more of that, please. Uh, awards come with, the awards season is about maybe a month or so left. We've got the BAFTAs. Uh, who are, by the way, as Hannah, you tweeted, the presenting team for the BAFTAs this year, perfect. Alison Hammond and Richard E. Grant, uh, amazing duo. Uh, <laughs> I, I, <laughs> with Alison Hammond, the, her amazing Harrison Ford, Ryan Gosling interview came up on my socials again the other day. Watching that interview just always puts a smile on my face. She's amazing. Um, so got the BAFTAs, then we got the Oscars, and then award season. For this run will be over, which is not going to stop awards prognosticators from immediately leaping to next year's award season like a week after. Like, give us a break, please. But it's not going to happen. But it's fine. It's we already fine. know. It's going to be cocaine bear. So <laughs> we don't need to worry about it, guys. Cocaine bear. It's already been decided. <laughs> <laughs> cocaine bear will be reviewed in a future episode of the Fate of Black podcast. And we may even have an interview to bring you for that one as well. Mm-hmm. Our number mm-hmm. one fan. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but speaking of interviews, let's jump in with our interview for this week's podcast. But before that, here's the trailer for Sharp. You can't cheat on us, man. That's why we never feel sorry for the mark. I really like you. I really like you too. You lied to me. We're all human. Just doing the best we can. You cause your mother anguish, and I will not have it. She wants me gone. How do you think it ends? Not well. All I want to do is bang, 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 and ding, ding, and take your money. I love that song. Paper Planes, MIA, uh, but we're talking sharper, which unfolds within the secrets of New York City, from the penthouses of Fifth Avenue to the shadowy corners of Queens. Motivations are suspect and expectations are turned upside down as a con artist takes on Manhattan billionaires. This is directed by Benjamin Caron, who directed some episodes of Andor, a.k.a. the best season of TV in 2022. Oh, about time, Clarice. (laughs) Yes, yes. So many weeks we were waiting for you and now she's finally on the wagon. (laughs) We uh, got yes. it. We got it. We got again. <laughs> I climb the wagon in my own she's, time. She's holding the reins. I will not she's be ruled up. by man nor God. <laughs> and I will watch TV 
when I want to. <laughs> <laughs> so yes, it's directed by Caron from a screenplay by Brian Gatewood and Alessandro Tanaka. And it stars Julianne Moore, Sebastian Stan, Bianca Middleton, John Lithgow, and Justice Smith, who I talked to earlier this week. He's a lot of fun. He's a really up, up, up and coming actor. Doesn't sound like what he is anymore. He is a really strong actor. He's starting stuff like Detective Pikachu, which Clarice is a massive fan of. <laughs> I would say he's beyond up and coming. Yeah. He he feels like an he feels like an actor that has been in too many things now, and mm-hmm. you're kind of like, why hasn't he gone on to that next level? Because he's quite he's reliable, I would say. Yeah, the, the, the Pikachu. He starred in a couple of Jurassic World movies. He's got Dungeons and Dragons coming up later this year, and of course now he has Sharper, uh, in which he plays. You know, what? I'm not even gonna I'm not even gonna spoil that for you because with this film. <laughs> as we will get into properly this <laughs> next week. Uh pretty much everything is a spoiler because there's a lot of there's a lot of conning going on. There's a lot of conning going on. Um but it was really, really fun to chat chat with. Um what did we chat about? <laughs> I'm sure if I can remember. Did you talk about the Tater Pikachu? We did. We talked a little bit about the <laughs> yeah! Pikachu. We talked we talked about how much Pikachu merch <laughs> he has. <laughs> so yeah. Uh that that was a question specifically for you, Clarice. That I oh my God, thank you. <laughs> we talked a little I'm bit about so Dungeons. excited to find out the answer. <laughs> <laughs> Clarice is gonna listen to my interviews for the one of the first times ever. No, I'm joking. I'm joking. <laughs> Me. <laughs> we talked a little bit about Dungeons and Dragons and Jurassic World. We talked a little bit about working with Brianna Middleton, who for me is the Best thing in the movie. I mean, I'd not heard about her before watching this movie, but she is incredible. Um, so yeah, we talked about all of that and much more. Here it is, me chatting with Justice Smith. Uh, welcome to the Pay to Back podcast, Justice Smith. How are you, sir? I'm good. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. Thank you for joining us. Um, and thank you for talking to me about your con film, Sharper. And I do say con film. I love these types of films. I assume you do too. What is it that you love? about them and what are some of your favorite con movies what are some of my favorite con movies oh gosh i mean i'm trying to think the only ones that are coming to mind are like the uh oceans 11 12 13 14 15 16 17 movies (laughs) um but i haven't seen them fairly recently so uh yeah i can't really think but the reason why i love movies like this is because uh it shows that the human condition on its own can be interesting. It can be thrilling. You know, mm. this this movie banks on its uh, on the relationships of its characters, and there's no real gimmick or uh, like fluff to it. You know, it's just dialogue and and uh, complicated interactions between people. And I think that in this day and age, uh, that's kind of missing from film, or at least you know. The, there's there's an there's an avenue for films like this that uh mm. um yeah yeah I, i'm just happy that we can prove that like you know life is interesting too you know it it doesn't always have to be fantasy although fantasy is great um mm. yeah yeah no we will definitely be talking about fantasy later cuz i know what you got coming up so we'll get to that <laughs> um let's talk about tom and his story he is the one that we start off with how did you approached Tom and what was it about the screenplay that really spoke to you? The screenplay uh, it was the fact that Julianne Moore was in it. 
I wanted to do it really bad. <laughs> I would have played fair. as as reasons go. That's a good one. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I would have played, you know, any character on the street if Julie was doing it. But um, what I liked about Tom specifically, he's a real melancholic type. You know, he's he's consumed by literature because it's his form of escape. And mm. I I know that growing up, I I was I wasn't. I didn't come from a particularly wealthy family, but I went to a school where there was a lot of wealthy kids, and there was this weird paradox that would happen that where they uh, would have so much privilege, but then feel really empty inside, and or like be disgusted with the echelon that they were born into. And I thought that was really interesting, like the ways in which. Uh, the shame that can come from having more than others. You know, and Tom specifically uh, has only ever seen money as an obstacle, uh, uh, as an obstacle between connection. Uh, And I think that's why he's yearning for love and he's yearning for connection because he doesn't come from a, a sphere that nurtures that. Um. So that's what really stood out to me. I've played characters before who are desperate for love, uh, but I thought, so, I mean, so I thought that this was, I thought this role was in my wheelhouse because of that. Um, and I wanted to work with Julie. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. Um, but yeah, and no, you, you mentioned that connection and that comes in the form of Brianna Middleton's character. I love meet cutes in movies when they're done right because you can just feel that connection powerfully. And I think this is one of those occasions when it is done right. When you met Brianna Middleton for the first time, did you feel that immediately? Or did it take you a while to foster that chemistry? Yeah, no, I did feel it immediately or fairly immediately. When I first met her, I was kind of intimidated by her because she was so prepared and she was she was always nice, but she just was a proper actress, you know? Like, she cared about the work so much, and uh, even when she wasn't acting, she had uh, such a professional air to her. And I would tell my friends, I'm like, this girl must be much older or has been working for so long. And, you know, I find out that she's, like, three, two, three years younger than me and, and is, was just born like that, you know? Uh, she has, like, a regality to her. But then when we started to hang out more, uh, I I realized that she also has this incredible uh, down-to-earth side to her. And uh, she's very relatable and funny, and and uh, I'm grateful that we got the time to get to know each other because we have to trust each other a lot in this film. There was a lot of scenes in which that wouldn't work if we didn't trust each other. And... Uh, I, yeah, I, I'm just grateful it was her over over anyone else because mm-hmm. uh, our relationship is is very special, um, the the character's relationship. But me and Brianna's relationship too. You know, to this day we still talk on the phone from time to time, and uh, yeah, she means a lot to me. Um, of course, for Tom, that meeting with Brianna changes the course of his life. Uh, Mostly for the better, Some, sometimes for the worse. I'm not, I'm not trying to spoil the movie, but people <laughs> who know the movie will, will understand. Has there been anyone like that for you in your life, whether the meeting was planned or unplanned, that really altered things in a big way? 
Ooh, interesting. Um, I mean, I'm thinking about one of my really good friends, one of my best friends. Uh, she came into my life through a very weird way. Uh, she, the person I was dating at the time, met her first and told me how amazing she was. And then my manager started to rep her randomly, completely unrelated. And then my other best friend met her randomly at a park. And I was like, who is this girl? And like, why is she circular? Like, she's like circling me. <laughs> like I thought she was a stalker <laughs> or something. And then I finally met her and, you know, we've been friends for like three years now. And uh, all of those other people have kind of fallen off, which is funny. But uh, hmm. she... Yeah, she's, she she understands me like anybody else, and uh, unlike anybody else, and uh, I'm so grateful for her friendship. Um, but yeah, that was that was definitely a faded interaction. Uh, mm, I love that. Yeah. Um, you mentioned earlier uh, you meet at a bookstore, you and Beyond Linton's character. Are you a heavy reader, and being on that set inspire you at all? Because it looked pretty incredible. <laughs> yeah, the set design is phenomenal. That bookstore was not a bookstore. You know, they completely made that a bookstore, which was really wow. cool. Um, <laughs> I'm not a particularly avid reader. I read from time to time, specifically if it's for work. Um, mm. But I did read Jane Eyre for this project because it's Tom's favorite book, and I read most of Anna Karenina, but I couldn't get through, I couldn't finish it. But I also read the complete <laughs> works of Edgar Allan Poe. Uh, you know, I was also learning Italian at the same time. Um, yeah, I was just trying to fall in love with reading the way Tom, uh, was, but I, yeah, I like reading. It's just, I have a, my brain is broken. I don't know. Like, I, it's hard for me to focus on things. <laughs> so like when, yeah. it, when I do read, I have to like listen to an audiobook and also have the book in front of me. Like, mm. that's how much I need, like assistance to focus <laughs> gotcha. you mentioned italian there which you were learning for this film is there any other skill which you had to learn for a specific film that you can still do now uh horseback riding i had to learn for mm. dungeons and dragons which is coming out soon nice. uh, <laughs> uh is there any other skill that i still know um I mean, I learned how to rap for the get down, but I don't know how to do that anymore. <laughs> um, that is a guy who knows there will be a follow up question saying, Can you rap for me a little bit right now? And then smartly dodged it. I see what you're doing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm not a very good rapper. Um, but I also wasn't a very good rapper during the get down, or at least I wasn't a very good freestyler. Like, if someone yeah. gives me lyrics, I could, you know, I could. Uh, make something up but yeah i needed yeah that that also was a lot of smoke and mirrors that project yeah <laughs> um you mentioned the oceans movies before so i assume that would be your answer to this question which is if you could have tom appear in any con movie what movie would it be i think he could be part of the oceans 14 crew <laughs> you know, they're, they're, they're up in the numbers need one more they come to you. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> uh, you know, t Tom doesn't really have, I, I think, the confidence to pull off something like that. Um, mm. But, uh, yeah, I mean, that's, uh, like, honestly, I can't think of any other con movies, so that's just going to be my safe answer is the Oceans <laughs> movies. 
It is a good one. It is a good one. I watched it the other day. It holds up. It oh, holds okay, up. dope. I'm gonna watch it. <laughs> um, I wanted to ask uh, about this movie you did called Detective Pikachu. More specifically, okay. how much Pikachu merch do you own after that movie? <laughs> you know, so I I have so much Pikachu stuff, uh, and, <laughs> and just recently, this is gonna sound ungrateful, but just recently, I I had to go through some of that stuff and just be like, okay. I don't need this. I don't really need that. Like, I have towels that have Pikachu on them. Like, I'm like, wow. I don't need these towels, you know. <laughs> um, but I, 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 you know, I always try to keep something from, you know, a project, whether it's merch or a T-shirt or, you know, something. And so I still have, like, a, I have one of the his deerstalker cap with his ears, um, <laughs> which is really adorable. Uh yeah. What did you keep from Sharper? What do I have from Sharper? Uh, did I keep anything from Sharper? I kept the experiences <laughs> in my <laughs> heart. <laughs> Very good. Very yeah. good. And you kept the friendship of Brianna Middleton. Yeah. Oh, there you go. Yeah. You Brianna go. was the best takeaway from, <laughs> from uh, Sharper. Awesome. Awesome. I mean, I got to ask because he mentioned it Julianne Moore. Um, did you keep that friendship? What was it like actually sort of getting to work with her? Uh, she's incredible. And yeah, me and her DM on Instagram. Like, <laughs> I'm always like, why are you DMing me? We have, like, we have each other's phone numbers, but uh, <laughs> she she's a big, big Instagram fan, I guess. Um, no, she's she's a real craftsman, you know? Like, she has the ability to shape a performance right in front of your eyes. And she really taught me... Uh, well, inspired me to be unafraid to try things on set. You know, there's this kind of culture around acting that it has to be a private process and, you know, you have to, like, take all your notes on the script, like, it, like at home and come to set prepared. And, you know, she was always prepared, but she was, like, would say the line and then and then try, try it differently and make a, a bold choice. And, uh, like, it was... It was beautiful to watch her be so free you know she's really just a channel of creativity and uh uh I, she gave me in she in, indirectly gave me permission to also explore that that presence of of finding out in the moment what what the line is or what the character is you know and shaping it from there um yeah i love that um you mentioned dungeons and dragons there which is the next movie you got coming up after this were you a big D and D fan before you got the gig? No, I was. I, I I wanted to be. I didn't really have friends growing up, so I didn't. Yeah, I didn't uh, have a group that would play that I could play D and D with. I knew some some stuff about it, but uh, I, I every time I tried to approach it, it, it was really daunting. There's a lot of rules and uh, a lot of research you have to do, but. I'm so grateful that I was in the movie because I actually got to play before we shot and uh, that was so much fun and, you know, I have to do research for every part that I do, but the research for that was literally like just learning about all these worlds and like <laughs> lingo and stuff and different races and classes and species and, and uh, yeah, that was, that was, that was very fun and, and, you know, I had to do a quarantine, a two-week quarantine before I could shoot uh Wow. We all we all did obviously you know mm. in these COVID times, but during that those two weeks I was reading these like big chunky D and D books, and just like 
like crafting a backstory for my character based off of these off, off of the lore that's already written. Um, mm. That was really cool. That was really cool. That sounds like so much fun. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> yeah, it was I fun. chose one profession. Research is playing D and D. Are you still playing it now? After until they're done with the shoot, or? you know, Chris, Chris the other day was like, guys, we should get together and play again, and and I'm so down, and I'm just waiting for him to call, you know, uh, <laughs> but. Uh, Again, I don't have any other friends who play, you know, like the only people I know who play are the cast. So, um, yeah, I'm just waiting, it's, waiting it's for his to you bat to, to be the captain of that team, get a team together, <laughs> marshal them. We're counting on you, Justice, right, okay? Right, right. You can do this. I would be a terrible <laughs> DM. Like, I'm not, I'm not very good at creating uh, stories like that. <laughs> uh, a final question for you. After your experiences on Jurassic World and Detective Pikachu, how did you find all the green screen VFX reacting to stuff that isn't there on D&D? Because from the trailers, which are very fun, by the way, it looks like there's quite a bit of that. Surpri- surprisingly, there there wasn't. Uh, oh. most, of, most of D&D is shot on location or the sets are built out. You know, there's some green screen, you know, like obviously the dragons are not there, you know, but they really did their what? best to... I refuse to believe you. <laughs> <laughs> They, but they really did their best to immerse us in the experience, you know, and I and I, I always appreciate that as an actor. Um, but when it comes to actually shooting on green screen, I actually, I've had the the fortune of being on three, uh, you know, big blockbuster sets, you know, fantasy kind of sets that all uh, really, uh, you know, uh, tried to use as little green screen as possible. Um, you know, on the Jurassic movies, they had a lot of puppets, and uh, on the Pokemon movies, same. There was a lot of puppets, but in both of those movies, it was on set locations, and you can see that you know those those big blockbuster movies always have like such a high budget, and you could tell that they're using the budget to good use to help the actors feel more, you know, in the in the world. Uh, mm-hmm. But there, you know, of course, there's going to be moments where there is green screen. And in those moments, it's it's very similar to acting school, where in acting school, like you're, you're on a you're on a tiny little stage with like a bunch of students in the audience, and like you're you're clearly nowhere, uh, like you're you're not at the location that you're pretending to be at, you know. Or mm. if you like do monologue work, like you're not speaking to the person that you're supposed to be speaking to. And I kind of just use that that training that I had of like imagining what is around me. Uh, you know, like that's that's kind of a muscle you have to build as an actor uh, to create the reality around you. Love that, love that, and excited to see it. Uh, Justice Smith, thank you so much for your time. It's been a pleasure. Yeah, likewise, likewise. What did you want before Miami? I just wanted to escape my life. Do you like bartending? It's not really what I do. What is it that you really do? But then you came along and gave me this unexpected, magical moment that made me remember who I really was. If you're haunted, let's do it. Ride it, my pony, my saddles waiting.
come and jump on it. <laughs> there you go, that's me. I was doing a little jig. <laughs> <as well. laughs> okay. Mike Lane takes to the stage again after a lengthy hiatus following a business deal that went bust, leaving him broke and taking bartender gigs in Florida. For what he hopes will be the one for what he hopes will be one last hurrah, Mike heads to London with a wealthy socialite who lures him with an offer he can't refuse and an agenda all her own. With everything on the line, once Mike discovers what she truly has in mind, will he and the roster of hot new dancers he'll have to whip into shape be able to pull it off? <laughs> pull it off. <laughs> right. So the, 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 the hammer pulled you off. <laughs> I always think of that joke. Name me a sex tape. Okay, the third and potentially final instalment in the Magic Mike franchise, Magic Mike's Last Stands, is directed by Steven Soderbergh from a script by Reed Carolyn. It stars Channing Tatum, Sama Hayek, Pinot, uh, Ayub Khan Din, Jamalia George, and Juliet Matamid. So, I didn't see this because I was away. Um, I suppose, where do we stand on the Magic Mike franchise thus far? Amon? Yay or nay? Yay. Um... They're fun. The first two are fun if... not Throwaway is not the right word, but just light. Like, one of the th- things that I like about this film in comparison to the other two is a, how it's a bit more mature in some of the themes it's going for. The look that Clarice has given me says that she disagrees. <laughs> I'm um, sorry. <laughs> Could not disagree more. Yeah. I'm sorry. Maybe, maybe, I'm sorry. maybe mature is the wrong word, but I, I want to speak. There's some interesting relationship stuff that this film has that I don't think were as much of a focus in the other two films, which I appreciated. Um, mm. But I still got time for the other two films. Uh, you know, I use the word often, Jimspiration, and those two films absolutely, and this film. Uh, Definitely, definitely gave me that in spades. So, yeah, kudos. Okay. <laughs> I, I I remember liking the first and being surprised that it was not the stripper movie I thought it was going to be. And I suppose that's the Soderbergh of kind of like, you know, gritty, like deconstructed way of take on like something that could be quite, you know, extravagant. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I, I didn't finish the second one. I got bored. Uh, Clarice... How, how did you stand on those first two? I like both. Um, some I, I don't know where I was like not in the building because <laughs> I think I wouldn't actually enjoy being at a Magic Mike show. Um, but I maybe we would appreciate from afar. But I like no, I like the first two movies. Um, yeah, the first one is like here's a somewhat realistic look at the you know, like necessity of sex work during the American Great Recession uh but also there's a scene where like a micro pig eats vomit and I always think about that um and then the second one was like look we recognize that the reason Magic Mike made like 70 kajillion dollars at the box office was probably not the socioeconomic stuff Mm -hmm. it was probably the the naked men (laughs) and so magic Mike xxl is just like full-on you know like let let us cater to the female gaze and it's all about like women are so special and great and um we as strippers 
Wait, like I kind of like that it it tries to seek this place of mutual empowerment where like the the dancers feel empowered because they're empowering the women. So it's like really wholesome in a way, even though there's like a lot of um, balls right in faces. And I like mm. the plot line with Amber Heard where she gets uh, Mike's crotch in her face and it immediately cures her depression. <laughs> I thought that was a fun, <laughs> a fun plot line. <laughs> so wait, have you guys had any experience with male strippers? I went to a, uh, when that show Welcome to Chippendales came out, oh. they did an event at the windmill. Um, oh, yeah. With, but it was a lot more like what's in this movie where they didn't, there was no stripping involved. It was like enthusiastic dancing, mm. <laughs> is I what had, I would call it. I, it's been on Hendu's. I had one experience with a stripper where he came to this, oh, here we go, and like, he got me to like wash him like with sponge and I was like okay and he had quite a pointy penis what remember that and then the second Hendu I went on and he was less of a stripper more of a naked butler and what it also shows that you can be hot but absolutely sourceless so Amon male strippers any let's go into shock you Hannah that no I have not uh, had any because you are one, right? Is that what you moonlight as? <laughs> you meant to keep that quiet. Gosh, the DL. <laughs> magic, magic mon. <laughs> what would your um, what would your song be? <laughs> you know, like the song that you dance to. Ooh. Might be naughty, naughty girl, Beyonce. Mm. I'm feeling so sexy. Wanna hear you say my name? Oh, sexy man. Oh, I'm, I'm and I'd be of... awkwardly dancing. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I would need to consult my baby making playlist. Okay, let's put um, a pin in that and come back at the end because we probably should review. Oh this no, film. you can't! Oh, I keep thinking of that SNL sketch. Did you guys watch it from last week? Well, okay, Red never Joy. mind. Don't, no spoilers. I yeah. It. Okay. Um. <laughs> Sorry. So I, I, I suppose then. Okay. Interesting. What I think is interesting was that Tandy Way Newton was the original actress who was supposed to be in the film and now we get Sam Hayek. Again, this storyline, it seems to be that there's a kind of like a an evolving relationship between Channing Tatum's character and mm-hmm. Sam Hayek, Pinot's uh, entrepreneur, businesswoman, socialite. Uh, do they have chemistry? Absolutely, yes. Absolutely, yes. Um, and yeah, I love Sam and Channing together in this. Um I thought they were really sultry and they were really funny as well. Some of the line deliveries in this film <laughs> are really, really good. And Salma, by the way, this woman is aging like a fine wine. Can we just say that? 56 years old, I have to check because my goodness, she still looks stunning. Um, she and Jennifer Lopez are clearly sipping on the same vampire juice and I would like some. But anyway. Um... It's because a Latino. That's I think that's what it is. That's a special oh, yeah. sauce. <laughs> Same way that black don't crack. Like there's something in there. There must be something about being Latin. I honestly think it's part of the melanin. I think mm. there is something about when you've got a mix and I've got that melanin in, it kind of changes. But I also feel like sometimes we expect women to look terrible. Like it's such a weird thing. Sorry, I'm like segueing here a bit. Mm. But I, sorry, not to make it about me, but there's someone said to me the other day, it's like, you don't look 34. You look 24. I was like, 
what do you what do you think 34 year olds are supposed to look like <laughs> decrepit like <laughs> do you know what i mean it's such a mm. weird thing now we're so obsessed with age anyway sorry please continue mm. about the hot hotness of sam hayek <laughs> yes let's just do an entire podcast about that uh no uh, <laughs> so yeah um she's great and she's definitely still gives you that hotness that you would expect but also has some really great comedic timing as well there's one line which i think is emblematic of the entire film to a degree where she says this show is not about dick only <laughs> and the gap between dick and only the delivery is amazing um so yeah i thought she was great and channing also has a line in that scene which i'm not gonna spoil it reminded me of a line in the uh, 21 jump street the, 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 the delivery is in the same sort of tenor you'll know exactly what line i'm talking about when you watch the film um so yeah if i watch the film <laughs> what you, you're gonna <laughs> tell me that you hannah and Splint, are not gonna watch magic mike yeah, maybe. I don't know. Convince me. I've got this. Is what I'm waiting for her. This is your jobs now. Convince me, Clarice. Um, did you feel the heat? Did you feel the charisma? From them, yes. Like that's the one part of the movie I liked is that they are very well matched because, like, the himbo and like aggressive top energy is really fun and i could watch them argue with each other all day because she's mostly just yelling at him and he's like oh, i'm sorry you're so hot and i will do anything for you selva and that's kind of the movie and then channing has one dance at the end that's in rain and with a ballet dancer and that dance was fantastic um, but that's like the end of my positive contributions. Hold on, hold on. Are you telling me that the opening dance between Salma and Channing did nothing for you? Oh, I actually missed it because I, long story, but okay. Uh, well, but I watched uh, it in the trailer, and it's well, no, like no, 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 no. <laughs> hold on. You just had a whole thing about not watching trailers, and then no, that scene. I think it was me yeah, actually. Because I watched it after. <laughs> No, that that scene in the opening 10, 15 minutes is incredible. Um, and by the way, just all the way through, not only the steam, it's a very steamy scene, but the choreography in both that scene and the end scene is really, really impressive and on point. And the athleticism of all these dancers is incredible, especially in that last scene with the rain and with the sound design. I mean, it's, it's incredible so am i gleaning from this that it's actually veering more into step up territory than it is magic might because it seems to me that this whole concept is kind of based on like channing tatum doing the magic mike show in london and setting that up and that's the kind of like motivation of the film yeah so so yeah the salma Hayek is like i have this theater because I'm a rich ass lady <laughs> and I'd like you to do a sexy, sexy show in it. And he's allowed to like creative design the entire thing. And the end of the movie is basically the show. Um, and from my understanding, I have not been to see Magic Mike live, but um, I was talking to somebody afterwards. It's quite close to what the live show is. A lot mm. of the same numbers. And my, yeah, my big issue with this movie is that just like promo. I now show, right that, but I also now don't understand. I genuinely don't understand 
where the line is between stripping and just dancing because yeah. what was in this movie was not i don't i don't understand how that's stripping and i <laughs> I, I would be totally thing... fine if the sorry go on yeah i would i would be fine if the movie made the case for like you don't have to take your clothes off to be really sexy if that was like the argument of the movie i'd be like cool i that's that's empowering like i love that but the film is still the film acts under the pretense that this is no different to the two previous installations what's um no different to two previous installments while at the same time there's like no stripping in the movie mm. and i genuinely was just baffled out of my head because i was like what is going on yeah <laughs> i'm yeah. so confused <laughs> yeah. that's an interesting point it was it was less of a concern for me shockingly um but i see what you're coming from the, the one thing i will say we get it amon you're straight <laughs> But Jen, on not even like I want. It's not that I was like I need to see ass to be satisfied. I mean, like, Chris, what is your podcast name today? I mean, it was a joke, but like, I'm not genuinely as in a non-joke way. It's not that I'm like I need to see ass. It's it's because this entire franchise i thought was about male stripping and now suddenly in the last movie they have this voiceover from salma hayek's daughter that's throughout the movie and she keeps talking this like gcse literature essay stuff about how dance is the compass point a compass point orientated around freedom and i don't know what the fuck that means <laughs> and I was genuinely just wanting the movie to explain to me what it was doing. That's genuinely all I wanted. That's it. Mm. Yeah. Okay. And then you mentioned, you obviously focused a lot on Channing and Thingy, but what, what, what about the, everyone else? It seems that that was the weak point. That is one of the weak points of this film, for sure. Like, one, one thing that I do think this film was missing, the first two films, a big part of the appeal was that male bonding, male relationships. And here, you only see that original cast of Magic Mike sort of originals in a Zoom call with base body connection, I might I add. <laughs> and that's it. Um, and the dancers which they do bring in, which I believe are the actual dancers from the Magic Mike live show, they're basically silent for the entire Ugh. film. Um, so that's not great. Um, this is actually really pushed and putting me off, I will say. <laughs> well, one thing I will say, though, as much as a big chunk of the magic of what the magic mic appeals about is about the stripping, it's also about female desire and female empowerment and females getting what they want. And with Sama Hayek Panol's character, I feel like they do some really interesting things with that because she's all about the professional clout, the respect that 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 is what she has been craving sort of all her life and they set that up from basically the first scene onwards and this entire film is about her sort of getting that and figuring that out for herself and because she's trying to get over a divorce and to a degree the show which magic mike is putting on is about getting back at her ex but it's also about getting that respect and and i feel like this film does a really good job of that arc like that really worked for me did it not work for you boys 
I didn't get any. I don't understand how that movie at all was about female empowerment because she keeps saying she wants to put this show on to, yeah, to have revenge against her ex because Mike gives her a lap dance and she's like, it was life changing. So I was born a new woman and I fulfilled my potential. And it's like, I the movie doesn't really. There's like, there's no mission statement to the movie, I don't think, beyond like women should feel empowered by this which i think the previous film magic Mike xxl did a much better job of it because what i liked about that movie is that it recognized women as sexual beings who like are not a hundred percent romance orientated and and sometimes they just want like a hot guy to shake his ass in their face and i feel like with this one it was so muted and it was so pared back and it was like I I came out of it with just more confused than ever about female desire <laughs> and what that means and women desiring men in what way. I just I I feel like it really lost the focus that it had in the two previous movies. I think both of them had something to say about it, and this one was like, yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, let's wrap it up. This is out in cinemas this week. Uh, uh, are we screening? Are we streaming? Or are we skipping, Clarice? I would skip. Mm-hmm. I'm sorry. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I'm sorry. Amon, <laughs> I would screen. I had a great time. Uh, men, treat your ladies. It's fun. Valentine's Day is coming up. Okay. Mm. So, uh, from women slavering (laughs) to women talking where i come from where your mother comes from we didn't talk about our bodies we were given two days to forgive the attackers before they returned we hardly knew how to read or to write but that day we learned how to vote do nothing Stay and fight. Leave. Listen to the song that's in my heart. I can't. What? How does it go again? A melody I I start, (laughs) but I can't complete. But I'll try. There we go. (laughs) This is women talking, Uh, and I am a woman who is talking. In 2010, the women of an isolated religious community grapple with reconciling their reality with their faith. For years, the men have occasionally drugged the women and then sexually assaulted them. The truth comes out and the women talk about their new situation. Based on the novel by Miriam Toes, the film is written and directed by Sarah Polly. It stars Rudy Mara, Claire Foy, Jesse Buckley, Judith Ivey, Ben Whishaw, and Frances McDormand. Um, I mean, I kind of, I don't know if we just want to get it out of the way because I feel like the the big discourse around this, which is sort of, a part of the movie and also not that central to the movie is the color grading. Mm -hmm. Uh, I've seen a lot of people quite mad about the color grading in this film because, uh, I mean, I don't even know how to describe There's sort of this, it's a little of like an antique look, but the film is set in 2010 um, in a Mennonite community. Um, But there's a harshness to it. It's quite harsh looking. I mean, 
Hannah, were you immediately put off by the film look, how the film looked, or did you think that it worked? Yeah, I think it worked. Don't get me wrong, I did kind of like, at certain points I did question, but then, you know, he, he had a biro. Um, it could I I thought maybe it could be anachronistic, but um, I quite liked the look of it. It felt like an oil painting at some times, and I think it also created this, like, sense that this is something that has been going on for centuries. Um, so in a way, it kind of connected the past to the present and how these things, these atrocities towards women are still going on. So that, no, that didn't, that didn't hit, hit me off at all. Um, I actually quite like the fact that it was a slow, it was more of a slow reveal that we realised this is kind of modern day, you know, mm. that it is. And I think that adds to it because that makes it even more shocking because you're kind of like, oh, then you really feel that rage. You really feel that rage that, you know, Claire Foy's character has um, and several other ones. But that's what I quite like. We'll get into characters later on, but I did like the diversity of opinions that we saw on screen. Yeah. No, yeah, I didn't I didn't really see what the fuss was about. I am um, I thought I had more issue with how do you remember emancipation? I thought the colour grading yeah. was very strange in that. I think this mostly looked good there were some really beautiful shots occasionally i think the issue was that because it is 2010 they have electric lamps and um it feels almost like the film was lit for candlelight and moonlight but then when the electric lamps were in the scene it was so harsh it's like mm. really really harsh lighting which i was like this is strange um but i mean i'm on did you have strong opinions about how it looks just so we can get this out of the way because people have been talking about it a lot <laughs> I was going to say, I'm, I'm about to be the Ben Whishaw of this discussion. Um... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, shut your mouth. You know, you know, the women are talking here. Actually, this is the one time where I'm allowed to interrupt you, everyone. Uh, and like, you can't look at me like What I want to know no, is, was when say, are the also, men going to have their day? Okay? This is ridiculous. It's a sexist film. I'm not having when, it. <laughs> when, when, yeah, when I'm in hell. Um... I, I was also wanted to add, there was another contentious hot take that was doing the rounds as well. And I think we should just get this out mm. of the way as well. Um, I can't remember. What, it was, was it um, uh, Wendell Pierce who criticised the film because there were no black women or women of colour mm. in it? Um, and I just, and I, I felt like that was a bad faith kind of argument, to be honest, because, you know, it was very, very obvious that this is a community, whether you knew the story or not. And even says as well, it's like, it says at the end, right? But I feel like this is not a situation, like shoehorning in black women into this community in a story where it's actually about them just getting absolutely abused and raped and stuff like that. It's like, we don't want this representation. Mm. <laughs> I don't know. I don't think you need the representation here. But I also feel like, you know, if you're going to critique a movie, like let's don't, I think, you know, I, I personally felt that I could very much tell that this was either an Amish community where it's historically have been pretty much white. Obviously, this is a Mennonite thing. So I just felt like that was a kind of sticky subject for me that I feel like not every... Of course, we want representation, but, like, I don't feel like every single film has to just, like, do colorblind casting just to have representation for the sake of it when actually it doesn't ring true to the circumstances of what it's based on. And that thing that's my 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 response to that hot take i would say like well the one thing i find interesting it's not i mean it's not really a criticism but the 
this is based off an actual event and it was a Mennonite community in Colombia. And I'm kind of interested in why they changed the location. But I think that speaks more just to... But it was a white like, community me- in Bolivia. Yeah. Oh, oh sorry, But I'm Columbia. just kind of... So that's why it's like, it's not really a criticism, but I'm like, I'm, I'm interested in like the location change. I don't know if it's like a... Because I think the book also changes the location. And I don't know whether it's just like an American-centric like yeah, perspective probably. that kind of changed. But yeah, it's not really a criticism, but that was the one thing that was like, it's, it's interesting that it changed. Mm. Um, or maybe it was just to deliberately remove it from the actual real incident a little bit so it could be more, as the film says, a work of female imagination. Yeah. Um, but now, okay, to move on into the actual, like, the movie movie, uh I mean, it is essentially a, f- a feature-length discussion, a conversation. It is women talking, um, two groups. Well, there's like kind of three different uh, things that they're trying to choose between, which is do they stay and they fight, do they leave, or do they basically do nothing and and forgive or at least try to find forgiveness? I mean, that's a big sticking point between the women. Um Hannah, I mean, how did you think that that kind of breadth of opinion was handled and that, like, nuance was handled? Yeah, I think it was done really well, and I like that it... It it peeled back the layers, I think. Every kind of... There's this... Is this tension between them? And I also think there's a really... You know, it's very much like a play, really, isn't it? And I think there's a really dynamic delivery where everything felt like a natural conversation. Like it didn't feel like overly written. It felt like the way that they delivered the dialogue added the kind of authenticity and naturalism. Um, And it gave time to let certain things breathe as well. Um, I think when you're doing it in one location, how do you make it interesting to look at? And I, I do think it did very well to have the different perspectives and also have a range of perspectives, whether it be, you know, the older one. I mean, I love that Francis McDormand just like comes in, says fuck all pretty much <laughs> and then like pisses off. And <laughs> and again, it's the different personalities. And I think it really wanted to ensure that everyone with something to say or a perspective had the chance to, even though the times when they talked over each other, it was more like, let's, let's hear it. And I think that's also normal because people get so frustrated um, that is a natural thing to get annoyed with someone's like, you know, I think the the, the kind of uh, the tension between Jesse Buckley's character and Claire Foy's and then seeing how that plays out and seeing where the source of that frustration comes from as well. You know, it's a lot about women talking, but also having empathy to understand where the internalized misogyny, you know, stems from. And how much it informs, especially generational, when you're basically raised by women to accept these things. And then suddenly your whole worldview is supposed to suddenly change. And it's like, it's not that easy to suddenly switch. And I think that's a really important, that's the nuances to say. And I think similar, we're going to talk about it with Blue Jean as well. I think that comes up about like, you know, it's not black and white. You don't just, not everyone just goes, what, like, wakes up and said, okay, this is wrong. When you've such ingrained prejudice and, like, like oppression and subordination, 
it's really hard to untangle that kind of brainwashing. Um, and I, I like the time it spends to really get into nooks and crannies of where that comes from. Um, yeah. And also, you know, as we, this is about assault and rape and I, I appreciate that we don't see any, see the, the violence. We might see the aftermath and stuff, but we, we don't actually see the violence. And I think that's really important sometimes to not re-traumatize people. Mm, yeah, I a hundred percent agree with everything you just said. That's so well worded about um, really untangling how embedded people's points of view can be and how difficult it can be um, to make what the right choice is when it's just like, there's no clarity about what the right choice is. And I guess this is really a performance led film. Um, so I kind of want to ask you guys, you know, it's an ensemble movie. So there's kind of like, there's so many good performances in there. So I kind of wanted to ask, um, each of you who really stuck out to you, um, Amon, what, who, who would you pick if you had to give a little trophy to somebody? <laughs> um, Ben Wishaw. <laughs> <laughs> Look, you know the, the women are okay, but this is this is this is Ben Wishaw's time to shine. And my gosh, did he ever! No, he is good, but the MVPs of this movie for me were Claire Foy and Jesse Buckley. Um, they are incredible, and you know the performances and the screenplaying, which I believe has been Oscar nominated. I think I'm. Yeah, screenplay, best film, not best directors, because apparently... Mm. That old chestnut. <laughs> Movies count. just direct yeah. themselves, yeah. don't they? Yeah, but... <laughs> the camera just floated <laughs> into position. But... Ben Whishaw <laughs> moved the camera. He did and everything. that's why he is the true MVP. <laughs> no, I'm joking. Um, but in a movie like this, where it's all about the debate, it's all about the dialogue, it's all about the delivery, the screenplay needs to be as good as it is. And it is like I was riveted for pretty much the entire way through really listening to the debate. Um, and I love that. And there's a couple of really standout moments that Jesse Buckley and Claire Foy have. I think there's one like for like a two minute monologue where Claire Foy just really expresses her rage at the situation she finds herself in and the harm that's being caused to her children, which is incredible. And Jesse Buckley plays a character who initially doesn't want to leave the arc that she goes on and the truths that emerge and how she delivers that is very, very powerful. Um, and Jesse Buckley, I've been a lot, I've been a, a fan of hers for a while. She had that film wild Rose. That was the first time I took notice of her. And I was like, wow, this is a star. She's going to go on to have an incredible career. I can't wait to see what she does next. Some of her, choices after that haven't fully worked for me even though she's been great in them the films haven't always been great here you get to see i love that she went from men to women talking she also did the uh, doctor doolittle <laughs> film mm -hmm. if says, which was not good um so yeah she's great she's great um i for me those are my two mvps buckley and foy i know who's who, who are you giving a little trophy to um i think judith ivy like, oh god, she was such like a mum. <laughs> She's like, like, quiet down. 
You haven't got much time. What are you arguing? I just thought she just like, I think it's all good to have like these assertive personalities mm-hmm. who are like, do all the work and be like, yeah. Mm-hmm. But actually to have someone who is just like there to be like soothing, to like feel, feel, you know, give that warm hug and be the voice of reason. And I would say Hiram Rooney Mara, Mara kind of like that. I did really enjoy, um, I want to say, I want to say Sheila McCarthy, uh, who plays Greta, who has a horse. <laughs> and she was really great as a comic relief. I would like to tell but a story about Ruth and Gretel. <laughs> she does that a couple of times. Yeah, I, I thought she was great, a bit of comic mm. relief. Um, but I have to say, you couldn't have picked a better man to be the man in this film than, a man than Ben Whishaw. <laughs> the men are done talking. <laughs> man, man, man listening is my speak. podcast name, and that is what I shall be doing. Yeah, okay, cool, cool, cool. Put him on mute. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I, I just, I think, like, I, I, there's something about Ben Whishaw where, again, I just, I, I feel like he becomes these characters. Mm. Um, the characters that he plays, except for Paddington, I'm not reopening it. I don't like <laughs> but like, mm-hmm. there's something about him in this movie where I do think you know I'm not saying it has to, you know we all know it's not all men, but I do love the fact that there's also an element of like this willingness to listen and going away and coming back and actually accepting when you know he could have been like a real insulty kind of character, but actually he's just a deeply respectful person who's like going through who's going through grief themselves and dealing with like this heartbreak but also like knowing like again there's so much about this film that is about sacrifice and having to make tough choices and having to accept choices and I think he just really beautifully played it and didn't you know again he didn't try to steal any scene he was just very good at just like not to like be like Olivia Wilde talking about Harry Styles as a supporting actor, but I I think he was like the perfect choice in this, and I think he imbued it um, with a lot of empathy, um, and a lot of heart and a lot of emotion. But you know, not to distract from the other people, but just like they're doing his little thing. I would kind of disagree mm. a little. I don't. I didn't love. I love Ben Whishaw. I adore <laughs> Ben Whishaw. I didn't, I, there was something a little off about how the character, and I think a little bit the performance was pitched that, like, that character is so meek that it felt overstated to be like, here's the nice, you know, so gentleman. I think the idea that, um, like, like, the, the man could only be an ally if he's like, the most gentle, like Paddington Bear <laughs> human guy to have ever existed <laughs> to me was like, and this was, I really liked this movie. I think that I didn't love it just because there were little tiny things like that, that I felt like would, were a little too neat or like, it, it, I wish they were a little bit more thorny or we'd gone there and we investigated and we looked at it and like, it's for example, another thing is the character of, of Melvin, uh, played by I played by August Winter, who um 
is a trans guy and he is largely mute or I think fully mute um, he only speaks because to his of children. the traumatic yeah he only speaks to the children um which I really appreciated that character being there but I feel like the movie didn't really want to talk about his experience and like where was his place and how did he feel about it and I, I just felt I was a bit like oh why was that character there and then we didn't really get to learn anything about them um that's an interesting point actually I think that's an interesting point because again yeah because the cis the cis straight the cis straight man gets like more of a character journey than the, than yeah. the trans man I think that's and I don't criticism. I don't want to talk about the ending, but there's a thing with the ending that I was like, we haven't addressed like what he's doing, <laughs> like what he what how he feels about it, what what his involvement is, and I was to be fair though, it is like, called women talking. <laughs> yeah, but I, I this is as difficult. That's the thing. That's a difficulty. But it's like there's a thing with the ending that I was like, I, I wish we'd address something about this because um it yeah, but it's just, it's just a small thing that didn't that meant I didn't quite fully like feel in like in this movie and present in this movie. Um but does anyone have anyone anything else they want to say before we wrap up? The score oh. by Hilda Goodnotatia is very, very good. Um unsurprisingly she won the Oscar a few years ago for her work on Joker. Um and here it's really really good. Uh, the final track is really really beautiful. Um lots of elegant string string work uh most of the other scenes are scored by this light percussion which also really worked for me so yeah really dug the score that being said <laughs> on my way back from the screening i saw a poster that called this the like a, the cinematic experience of the year and this film has many things and i really like it i would not call it that um of course you wouldn't <laughs> Man, is it because it's, it's what Spider Man? Spider Man, yeah, I mean, Spider Man talking. <laughs> Spider Man talking. I, let's all go watch that movie. No, um, it was. It came out. It's called No Way Home. <laughs> um, but yeah, no, I, I, I really like the, the the ensemble. I think is just brilliant, um, and the balance of styles and voices and what they're each bringing to the table in the debate, I think is very well balanced across the entire movie. Uh, so yeah, kudos to Sarah Polly. Uh, let's do our screen stream or skip for women talking. Um, Hannah. Uh, screen. Amon, you don't get an opinion on this one. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> I was listening attentively like a good man and this I is don't the... remember Ben Wishaw getting a vote in the movie. I don't remember that happening. Oh yeah, he doesn't so... get a vote. Actually he doesn't get a vote. Wow. Amon, are you gonna conscientiously wow. I was, I was taking all the meeting notes, you know, I was being a good little man and this is this is the treatment I get. No. Oh God. <laughs> Do you now want a pat on the you want an ally? Do you want a t-shirt? This is what a feminist looks like my feminist badge and everything it's a screen for me there i said it you're happy now you've got a strong yes. female character badge <laughs> this is true this is very true <laughs> i oh gosh i don't i kind of want to say stream but i i don't want to sound mean about the movie so you're i did allowed like to it say a lot stream. 
I might say I'll balance it to say sh- sh- stream, but it's still it's really good. I just had some a, a couple of little things with it. Yeah, yeah, it's definitely between those two. As I say, this is when it comes to cinematic experience. I I don't know about that, but it is the the performances are worth seeing on the big screen if you can make it there. It's really good. So, from women talking. Do I guess women kind of not talking because talking um, might get them in a lot of trouble. To women bunking. <laughs> bunking? What From women that? talking to women bunking. Oh, bunking. I thought you said bunking. Is that some sort of term I don't know of about? I yeah, I think it's a sapphic <laughs> euphemism. <laughs> yeah, that's, I haven't heard that one. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> this is blue jean i need you in two teams jimmy can you get over here mike over there so what do you do jean i'm a teacher fantastic what do you teach p lois come on in you got a man on the scene at the moment then no no you do realize that the philobotellies with this here to distract us from what's really going on not everything is political of course it is here at home, there's been another big demonstration against Clause 28, which seeks to stop councils from promoting homosexuality. I've been saying this is a good idea for years. Young people have such vulnerable minds. Blue jeans, white shirt, watch until the room you know you made my eyes burn. And something about daddy, like five times. <laughs> Clearly you love this song. That is all right. <laughs> uh, blue the jeans. straightest woman alive. <laughs> It just kind of doesn't work for this movie, but you know, it is a song about blue jeans. Blue Jean is set in England 1988. Margaret Thatcher's conservative government are about to pass a law stigmatizing gays and lesbians, forcing Jean, a PE teacher, to live a double life. As pressure mounts from all sides, the arrival of a new girl at school catalyzes a crisis that will challenge Jean to her core. This is written and directed by Georgia Oakley on her debut. And it stars Rosie McEwen, also making her debut, Kerry Hayes, Lucy Halliday, Lydia Page, and Stacey Abelogan. The synopsis teases the big thing in this film, which is the double life. Um, Jean has not come out. This law that has been passed has put strain on her life. How do we feel the film handles that mounting pressure? What really struck me about this, and I, I really liked this movie, um, is that it's about hypocrisy, but in the ways that, you know, are very cruel and deliberate and the ways where it's tragic because someone feels like they have no choice. And so um, on the one side, you know, you have that just government. And there's a really interesting scene early on where there's a radio report talking about Margaret Thatcher wanting businesses to invest in the arts. And there's a massive protest from artists because, uh, you know, they're saying Section 28 is basically killing freedom and killing personal freedom and that kills art. So, like, how fucking dare you come in and pretend like you give a shit about what we do? Um, And then uh, even the color palette, what I found really interesting is that 
in the really like oppressive spaces that she goes into the ones that are like the school where she just cannot disclose her sexuality at all when she goes to a, a family member's house where they're all like very homophobic um those spaces are all just pastel like soft feminine like you know the like the 80s pastel like really pretty pinks and blues but like that's like the irony is that it's like god these spaces are pretending that they're so soft and comfortable and welcoming but they're ugly ugly spaces to be in and then when Jean goes into uh like the lesbian bar the queer clubs queer spaces um those like they're quite dark and they're they're colorful and they're harsh but it's like they're real Mm. (laughs) you know and they're honest and people are able to be themselves and i loved i loved that touch um and yeah and then on the flip side you have jean like the hypocrisy of jean that she is so scared of losing her job that she doesn't disclose disclose her sexuality at all and there really comes a point in the story where that means that she fucks somebody else over and it's like she is being hypocritical but it's so like it's so heartbreaking because she doesn't feel like she has a choice or does she i don't know that's like kind of the question of the movie i guess mm-hmm. yeah i mean like i mean i love that you the color like the color and use of it or the lack of it jumped out at you because I think that was one of the strongest aesthetics choice to really get into like the two worlds she's kind of navigating you know I even thought you know the opening scene is her bleaching her hair and even the very act of bleaching is removing color you have to remove the color from the hair follicle in order to get that blonde shape so it's like even Mm. her queer transformation is only going so far where it's enough where she can still hide in plain sight, even though that would be a quite freeing act for her to say she cut her hair, she did that, but still she doesn't go further across the line. So she can still be like the quite, you know, pretty blue eyed, blonde haired, quite, you know, the way she dresses. And again, like even when she was wearing, she always wears this white tracksuit. Everything's quite clinical. Everything's so desaturated. Um, and I realize, but I think what's interesting about this film, you know, you talk, and it's, it's also about like, this is a political film, but it's not throwing it in your face. It's very much in the periphery. Mm-hmm. We understand that there, there, this stuff is going on. You know, I love the repeated um, motif of like blind date being used, which is like one of the most heteronormative uh, shows that we, you know, we watched. Um, and it kind of, you know, there's a really great scene where like Viv says, you know, she's saying, oh, you know, this is just like them trying to distract us from the issues. And Jean goes like, not everything's political. And it's like, of course it is. And yes, of course it is. And I think what I mean, looking at this film is like, you know, and then you have your running back, running past like a, one of those posters from the conservative posters, like, are your children being taught moral, Christian, traditional values, blah, blah, blah. But I love about this film is that, of course, there's like, you know, there's the plot narrative tension through this like young, this school girl who throws, you know, kind of, kind of potent, potentially cracks uh, Jean's very perfectly curated image. But I, it's a similar to the uh, the previous film. There's real natural conversations. This is where the truth comes out. This is where her character developed, where she's kind of at first, you really understand very slowly, but surely where she's come from, where she's been, like finding out a bit of her backstory that we weren't privy to at the bit of beginning, understanding more about her, but then also where she's kind of slowly learning how she's becoming complicit in the marginalization of lesbian and gay people at the time 
But again, this is such a non-judgmental film. Mm. This isn't trying to say she's wrong. Of course, she is kind of wrong in certain ways, but there's also an understanding there because, again, I love that this is like northeast of England, right? This isn't like London or, you know, Manchester where it's actually quite, you know, quite far more progressive than other places. Like, there's so many little details in this where you really understand that, you know, to have a salary, to have a career, you know, sometimes you have to hide some of yourself in order to secure that, especially when your whole, your your sexuality is demonised and seen as a potential threat to young children, um, you know, and that your identity is up for debate. So there is, like, empathy there. But there's also, like, really great, like, other characters who really kind of bring force Gene to kind of come out of it. And I, Rose McEwen, sorry, I, I think, like, Rose McEwen is really great at this, where she's kind of, like, very um, aloof in a way, mysterious but there's also this you can see the anxiety it's very subtle and you can see the stress underneath and that increasing anxiety as it comes out and yeah I think she really she really nailed that sort of as her transformation continues where it's beyond physical it's also like uh psychological yeah now the internal struggle that she is going through you feel like you can track wherever she is in her journey even when she's not verbalizing it, which I think is a mark of a really strong performance, all in the eyes, especially with her eyebrow, eyebrow. Um, Did you have anything to add to Rosie McEwen's performance, please? It's really, it's really impressive. There was one scene um, where she kind of, there's sort of like a small act of rebellion that she does, and then she leaves and she goes outside and she starts crying. And I thought that was so beautifully performed because there's it's, there's just so many emotions in there. It's like relief and fear and anger. And like, it's like, you know, when you pop a balloon and just everything's coming out. Um, it kind of reminded me of like, because I've been talking to people about the last scene in Babylon when Manny's crying. And it's that same like, like every emotion just comes out at once. And you can just see it on both of those their faces in those movies and i i don't know i love a good crying scene i guess uh, we touched on it earlier i think the cinematography by victor seguin uh i think is really really fantastic and helps put you back into the 80s as a set in 1988 Clarice, i wanted to talk to you about the costuming here uh what did you think of that i thought they also that was another part of why this felt so convincingly 80s even though it's obviously a film coming out now yeah, it felt like natural and quite authentic because I think the kind of <laughs> the interesting thing about 80s fashion is that it seems ridiculous now, right? Like the shell suits and everything, <laughs> the giant shoulder pads and all the nylon. Look, but I, I can make all of that work today, okay? Just give me some options. Well, I mean, look, <laughs> it's, it's trendy again. People are dressing like it is the 80s again, so it's all come back. But it's like, I think the movie finds a nice way in the production design and the clothing to take like uh cultural touchstones that feel so outsized now and find a natural place mm. for them like i like that this movie had blue monday in it and it always feels like that the obvious 80s song to play but they found a place mm. for it <laughs> <laughs> and it felt right because they would be playing at that club at mm. that time um and it's a fantastic song i love blue mm. monday love the club scenes love seeing tape players again <laughs> oh, the past. just on like a, a kind of like moving these stories away from the typical thing. I like the fact that it was in the Northeast. I like the fact that we've got this, like, getting Northern representation there. I also like 
as a former, uh, like, as someone who played a lot of sport in my youth, I like the fact that we had a PE teacher, and I love the fact we showed like netball and like um, and football, and I quite, you know, I feel like again we don't really see a lot of girls playing sports or being encouraged mm. to play sports in films, and I appreciate that. Like she was a good coach, and I think that for me was quite quite lovely to see. Yeah, yeah, because I feel like every teacher in a drama is always a literature, like an English <laughs> teacher. Yeah, it's nice to see a different kind of teacher. <laughs> uh. Although I'm pretty sure my PE teacher who taught me netball, there was a whole rumour that went round that she actually was having an affair with another PE teacher who was a man. So alas, I don't think she was gay. <laughs> uh, school. She liked other balls. <laughs> <laughs> that is definitely staying in. Uh, <laughs> on that note, well, let's move on to our screen stream or skip recommendation for Blue Jean. Chloe Slotboy. Screen. Hannah Inez Flint. Screen. Or a screen man. <laughs> I'm on Keith Woman. Screen. I like this one. Uh, yeah, it's a good, good week. Um, I feel like really good options for women, especially uh, this week. Because I, again, really liked Magic Mike's Last Dance. Grace is giving me the thumbs up right now. No, she's not. Anyway, it's time. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> it's time to move on to our. So, as we said at the top, we want to discuss whether it's hypocritical for outspoken actors to work with problematic directors. This, we should probably say, was prompted by the news that Kiki Palmer and Sasha Baron Cohen had joined David O. Russell's latest movie. Um, so, yeah, it's a tricky one because, especially for me, I'm a big fan of Kiki Palmer. She's just come off of Nope. Um her career is going from strength to strength right now. And David O. Russell, even when you take out the fact that the allegedly abusive past that he's had, his latest film <laughs> wasn't great and didn't do great things in the box office. So perplexing on that front as well. But when it comes to things like this, especially when an actor has made a point in the past of speaking out on these issues, as many actors have, when you then see a new story like this, what's the first thing that goes through your mind, Chris? I mean, I think, you know, with women talking, what is so fascinating about that movie is that, you know, I, I, I don't think we're going to make any meaningful progress on this issue until we stop concerning ourselves with personal image, with brand, with PR, with, you know what it looks like to be doing the right thing right because i think that's the only thing all these actors and hollywood prs everybody cares about is the appearance of them doing the right thing and i find that so hollow and so pointless and it, it kind of grosses me out and i think the only way that things are going to change is if people are honest and have sit down and like yeah have women talking <laughs> and have conversations about you know 
what does it mean to be working with certain people? Why are we working with certain people? Um, what is the cause and effect? Like, what is the cause and effect of starring in a David O. Russell movie? Um, is that going to cause further harm by doing that film, being on the set with that person, then going out and promoting the film? And um, that's why, like, when I see individual news pieces, I don't hold much, like, I don't really hold anything against Kiki Palmer or Sasha Baron Cohen for doing that in the same way that I didn't massively hold it against uh, Margot Robbie, Annie Taylor-Joy, Christian Bale, for all the people who were in Amsterdam. It's like 3,000 people in that movie. Um, Margot Robbie just doesn't because She'll work with anyone problematic. Yeah, and it's like, I don't, I don't know what's going on in her mind when she's making those decisions. I don't know what her justifications are. I wish we did because it's all just image, right? It's all just PR and, and um, you know, people go in interviews, right? And they say the right thing. And then they, is that what they actually feel in their heart? I don't know. And I just, I just get really depressed. I think that's my main reaction to it. I don't get angry. I just get really sad because I mm. feel like nothing's going to change because no one's being honest. And it's the thing is everybody's going to do something hypocritical at some point there's money pressures, there's career pressures. Like we're just mm. talking about blue jean, you know, sometimes you people just feel like they don't really have a choice because it's the question of, am I going to ruin my own life over this? So like, I, I get it. But like, as long as it's concealed behind this entire like show of, Lossy, oh, you're yeah. all such great feminists, right? Then it's all pointless. And yeah, I don't know. Sorry. I just, it just makes me depressed. That's my main, that's my answer to your question. Yeah. I think what I would add, I agree with that. It makes me just, it, but it, I sort of also just confirms in me, it's just my cynical attitude to a lot of people that we put famous people, actors on a pedestal and expect them to have the same values that we do just because they play characters that we like and they're good at performing, right? But they're also actors they can perform. So they're not their characters. Um, I definitely think there must be an element... I mean, if we could add in, like, hearing people talk about, and in private, hearing people talk about the Johnny Depp, Amma Heard stuff, that was a real eye-opener for me when I spoke to people in the industry, when I spoke to women who I considered quite, you know, who are very feminist in certain ways, the way they were very much Johnny Depp supporters and stuff, and they were watching it, it was like, oh, wow. So I wonder in the same way that, you know, the when they read stuff, they might not see it in the same way that we do, right? They might not see it in the same way, their parameters, their levels of stuff. You know, if you took at David O. Russell, you know, if you talk about like the way his behavior on his behavior on sets, if you just but focus on that rather than the alleged um, assault allegations, but his behavior on sets, there's such a normalized way of working for men, for men that they can be shouty and abusive and like, you know, allegedly like oh not allegedly George I think they both made a he headbutted George Clooney we've seen the video of him dressing down Lily Tomlin we've heard how Amy Adams probably wouldn't work with him again to the when they were on American Hustle that Christian Bell had to step in to stop David O. Russell being so abusive towards shouting stuff you know I think Jennifer Lawrence has said that oh she needs that but that and that's what I mean some people like that doesn't bother them they need that sort of way they need that toxicity to work because that's what they're so used to so I think what I hear about when I see these type of things I wonder if it's like like 
the line is not been crossed for people like Kiki Palmer and what they see in their personal kind of set of values and stuff is that that's not strong enough. Like that hasn't, um, hasn't met the limit of what they consider, um, problematic or unworkable. And then of course, there's also personal, you know, game, David of Russell. Yeah. He might have had a monumental flop for the last film, but he's also, you know, secured Oscars for some people and, you know, they might be wanting to get that Oscar nod. Who knows? Um, so yeah, I think when it comes to my hot take is that, you know, just remember that your faves are fallible human beings. <laughs> I guess my question, I think I know the answer, but like one of the things that was intriguing to me, especially with this latest go around with David O. Russell, was I was asking myself who, if anyone, should bring this up in an interview? Should that be a thing that even happens? Um, so I guess the wider question is that is like who is ultimately responsible for hold up a certain standard when it comes to these things, and it, it, because that's the sort of the person we just need to identify if we're gonna move forward in a positive way in this. Otherwise, it's just gonna keep happening and happening, right? You know what I'm saying? Yeah, but what power do we have, it's like? like- it can't at the after point at the point where the film's been made and doing an interview, right? It's gone past the point mm-hmm. <laughs> because they've already made mm-hmm. it, and then people will like it, and then the news chatter moves on, and then what's it today's like front page is tomorrow's you know fish wrap. Mm-hmm. If anything, it's again it's gatekeepers. It's who's deciding, who's making a decision to carry on letting these people work, right? And I think that's where the buck really falls. Mm-hmm. Fundamental for at yeah. first. Mm-hmm. I've never been like a massive fan of interviewers asking about this stuff because then again, it just comes down to image, right? Because you're just getting them to say the really neat quote about, you know, oh, I I feel regret about this or I'm going to try and justify it in some way. Like interviews are not honest conversations. They never are. (laughs) We can pretend that they are, but they're not. And um, no actor is going to be totally honest about their decisions why about why they decided to do something right they're never going to tell the truth um so i do often find those kinds of questions a bit pointless um i think everyone's responsibility and it's not us it's everybody if you have twitter social media is that you know speak up and say that you find this uncomfortable don't watch the movie don't highlight it um and I think, because, you know, money talks is the only thing that talks. So there will come a time if people's movies continually tank that they will get less work. I think, like, the big pushback that happened in recent years against Woody Allen has had a material effect. He's not making movies with the same studios that he used to before. So stuff does happen. Um but, you know, just the depressing thing is that there's no regularity to it, right? It's just like whoever society decided that they're actually going to do something about um, at any given point. Yeah. I think that's a nice note to leave things on. But I also think, sorry, I just to add, sorry. <laughs> that was a nice note to end on. <laughs> Hannah, <laughs> hold my beer. Um, <laughs> I was going to say, but I would say about the Woody Allen thing, that also the quality in his work is diminished. And I think that's also, I think that's less about accusations and more about he's just not making movies like he used to. I think that's part of it. <laughs> so I, I think that's, I, and so I wonder if it's, if this, if this David O. Russell one, 
if that fails again, then suddenly he's more of a, he's far greater risk because it's like one thing I can be safe to say studios do not care about problematic people as long as they're bringing the money in. It's only when they don't bring the money in that's when they start using the excuse of they're problematic and that's why we're not getting. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. I, I but I guess it's it's all we can do, right? It's you know in this fucked up capitalist world. <laughs> consumer power is one of the only ways that people can have any say in anything that happens ever um we need a bds movement for hollywood (laughs) bds movement for individual (laughs) yeah 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 um i don't know yeah it's depressing I think that's a nice note to leave things on. <laughs> is it nice? Is it a nice it wasn't note? as nice as the last one. <laughs> it's depressing compared to the last of the nice it's, it's fine. Um yeah. Um we may or may not be returning to this conversation in future weeks. We shall see what Hollywood does or doesn't do. No, because they'll listen to this podcast and they'll be like, they're right. Of course. <laughs> of course. <laughs> Um, <laughs> no more. <laughs> We're going to totally restructure everything. <laughs> hey, let's put these guys in charge. Okay then. Oh god, they keep making Spider-Man movies. Stop! Stop! <laughs> no, I feel like if we did it, we'd end up being like Homer when he's given when his brother lets him make a design a car, and then he wafers on the money, and it's like it's terrible. You bankrupted us. They'd be like, <laughs> and that's how it's done. <laughs> Destroy them from within. <laughs> Yeah, don't put me in charge of Hollywood. I'll give David Cronenberg a billion dollars. <laughs> yeah, yeah, let's, let's not do that. Um, but on, on that note, thank you for tuning in and happy viewing via whatever medium is the safest for you. You gotta subscribe, you gotta rate, you gotta review this podcast because it makes a difference. And you can also tweet us if you have any questions or hot takes at Faith of Black Pod on Twitter. We are everywhere, people. Uh, I. I'm at Amon Woman on Twitter and Instagram. I'm at Clarice Lou on Twitter and at Clarice Lockery on Instagram. Also, I'd like to dedicate this episode to Melanie Linsky, who's doing great stuff on the last episode. Yes. And also doing great stuff on Twitter. Love that thread. If you head to Melanie Linsky's Twitter, her. you understand the thread that I'm talking about. It's very good. It's very on point. She's, She's just speaking great. facts, and I like it. Yeah, we love her gay agenda. Uh, you can find me at mm. Hannah Flint on Twitter and at Hannah Ines Flint on Instagram and Strong Female Character in store and online. Awesome. I have no book to speak of yet. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Anyway. <laughs> Farewell, film friends and book friends and TV friends. It's time to fade to black. Mm-hmm.